Sorry, I missed my cue. Uh, if you've got a Bible, you can keep it open there at uh, 1 John chapter 2. I'll be putting some verses up on the screen behind me as well. Uh, but I'm going to pray. I'll ask for God's help as we look at his word together this morning. Father, thank you for the day you've blessed us with. And we thank you for uh, your word, which is a constant blessing in our lives. We pray that today uh, you would speak to us through it uh, as you promised to. Uh, that you would make your word a living and an active thing for us, uh, that uh, you might challenge us about uh, what it means uh, that we claim to be followers of Jesus, uh, what that should look like in each of our lives, uh, and that for our part uh, we would be people who remain in Jesus and walk and live like he did. Uh, we pray that you would help us uh, to understand that better and to do that more faithfully. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I saw a, an interesting program on the ABC uh, a little while ago, about a month ago. I don't know if anyone else saw this. It was about the, um, the, the Whiteley art scandal, and um, it was rather creatively called the Whiteley art scandal. Uh, now, I'd never heard of this thing before, um, perhaps because I'm, I'm not particularly well-networked in the art world. Uh, but several years ago, um, an art dealer and a, a curator got convicted of selling some paintings uh, that were alleged to be fake Brett Whiteleys. Um, this is one of them, this is the, uh, the other. Um, the conviction was later overturned on appeal. Um, the judge saying they didn't feel they had um, the ability to make a determination as to whether or not the paintings were fake or not. Now the art dealer claimed to have bought them off um, Whiteley directly. Um, his story was that um, Whiteley was uh, feeding his heroin addiction by selling paintings out the back door. That's why no one else knew about it. Uh, the whole thing is still controversial and a bit of a mystery. There's no clear consensus even amongst the art community, although on the whole most people reject them as genuine Brett Whiteleys. Um, one of the purchases um, of uh, this particular painting, um, the, the Blue Lavender Bay one, um, was the chairman of the Sydney Swans, and he paid $2.5 million for this painting. Uh, it's now effectively worthless. He's donated it to the University of Melbourne. Controversies like this are nothing new in the art world. There's a long history of um, controversies around authenticity and forgeries. Some experts estimate that 20% of all paintings hanging in galleries and museums around the world are in fact fakes. Now, galleries and museums and even people who own this art themselves are not always too keen to find out the truth of the matter. There's not often people encouraging investigations because there's a lot of money at stake. Uh, no one wants to learn that their Van Gogh was actually painted by an art student named Trevor in his garage. And some of the forgeries, they're just really hard to spot. Um, sometimes it's really hard to prove if something is authentic or a fake, um, particularly when experts themselves are disagreeing about it. Well, in 1 John chapter 2, John wants to talk to us about genuine Christianity. And he says there are some tests that we can apply to see if we've got the real thing or some kind of cheap knockoff. And the three tests he gives us are the test of obedience, the test of love, and the test of truth. And so he starts here in verse 3 of chapter 2 by talking about 
obedience. He says, We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, the love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Pretty simple proposition, isn't it? If you know God, you'll obey him. You'll keep his commands. And if that idea sounds familiar, um, like what you heard last week, um, it's because John has his habit of cycling back to his ideas throughout his letters. Um, We saw a similar idea to this presented in the first chapter that Luke spoke about last week. Um, You might say John's a rather environmentally friendly writer. He's into reusing and recycling. Um, So this is your first repetition warning. Today is not the last time you're going to hear about obedience, love and truth as we go through John's letter. We're going to keep returning to these ideas. Get used to it. John says that authentic Christianity will be marked out by obedience to God. The claim to love God, to know God, is proven not by the enthusiasm of your profession, not by how emotional you get about it, not by how many profound spiritual experiences you can point to. John says the people who truly know God will take obeying him seriously. It will be seen in the lives that they live. To know God means taking him up as your Lord. That's what we all sign up for when we agree to follow Jesus. If you're after a religion that isn't going to disrupt your life too much, where you can kind of just keep doing whatever you feel you'd like to do, well, keep looking, says John. Christianity is not for you. I can't help but think that John has a few things that he wrote in his gospel, the gospel of John, uh, has those in mind as he writes this letter. We keep finding echoes of the words of Jesus in the things that John writes in his letter. Um, like what Jesus says in John 14, where he says, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. Jesus said that love for him would be expressed in obedience to him. And if you're, looking, uh, if you're wondering what that actually looks like, well, John expands on that idea a little uh, at the end of that section where he says, whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Well, how did Jesus live? How did Jesus walk? Well, Jesus himself claimed that he loved the Father and he did exactly what his Father commanded him. The call to obey is clear. But talking about relating to God through a word like obedience, it's not exactly trending right now. And I think there's good reasons for that. I think perhaps some previous generations, certainly within kind of Western Christianity, framed living the Christian life as a kind of obligation, um, as a duty to fulfil, a set of rules to keep. It wasn't particularly relational or enriching. But I think we still need to be reminded that living the Christian life, isn't, it's not a free-for-all. Jesus wants us to know that it matters to him that we obey him. It matters to him that we take obeying him seriously. 
And so maybe as a corrective in the church, I'd suggest we might need a little less bleeding heart lefty and a little more right-wing fundamentalism. That is an emphasis on personal responsibility, where we prize a bit of steady, faithful, patient obedience over our subjective, personal feelings and experiences. Now, I say that a little tongue-in-cheek, because I don't think those two ideas need to be pitted against each other. Because what we discover is that when we're talking about God's commands for us, these are, in fact, what is good for us. The God that we know loves us and only wants what is best for us. So whatever commands he gives us, they're not, they're not some sort of life-sapping, sapping, onerous duty that, that he's imposing upon us. Jesus told us that he came so that we could have life to the full. The truth is, authentic Christians, genuine Christians, those people who truly do know God, they will want to obey God. They will want to keep God's commands because we love him too as he loves us. So what does obeying Jesus actually look like? How do you walk as Jesus did? Well, we've already seen a bit of that. Jesus talks here about doing what the Father's commanded him. But to, I guess, put some meat on that bone, uh, we really need to look at the second measure of what the authentic Christian life is that John wants to talk about, and that is the test of love. Uh, pick it up there again in verse 7. John writes, Dear friends, I'm not writing you a new command but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard. Yet I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and in you because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Is anyone else a little bit confused by that? John says there, I'm not writing you a new command. And then he says, well, I am writing you a new command. But then he doesn't even tell us what the command is. So what is it? What is this old command, which we've had since the beginning, which is also a new command? Well, he doesn't tell us as such. Um, but he does kind of help us out in the second letter that he writes. So if you actually look up to John and look at verses 5 and 6, he writes this. I'm not writing you a new command, but one we've had from the beginning. I ask that we love one another. And this is love that we walk in obedience to his commands. As you've heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. Clear? I think it helps. Um, and again, I, I don't think uh, that John is only writing this like out of the blue. Again, I think he's got in mind something that Jesus had taught. So in John chapter 13, this is what Jesus said. Using Notice the rhythm in the language. A new command I give you love one another as I have loved you so you must love one another by this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another so here I think we have the old command which is also a new command that is the Old Testament law contained numerous exhortations to God's people to love each other to love other people so much so that when Jesus summarizes the law he condenses it down to these two ideas loving God and loving your neighbour. 
And so, in a sense, there's nothing new about this, but at the same time, there is. And that new bit, I think, is where Jesus says we are to love others as he has loved us. This is going to be the distinguishing mark of Jesus' followers. That's how everyone is going to know that we belong to him, that we are his disciples. If we love like he has loved, if we love with the love of Jesus, that's the ultimate test of authenticity. Which is why John can go on to say in verse 9, anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. Anyone who loves their brother or sister lives in the light and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. Love will be the mark of those that truly belong to Jesus. And John goes so far as to say that anyone who claims to be in the light, claims to be in a relationship with God, but hates a brother or sister, well, they're still in the darkness. It's worth letting those words settle for a moment. That these two things are completely incompatible. To be a follower of Jesus and to have hatred in your heart for a fellow brother or sister in Christ. Is there anyone that for you that might apply to? Someone that you know in your heart there is no love for them. Now I'm not suggesting that you don't hate them for no good reason. There's always a story, isn't there? I mean, I don't know what they did to you, what they said to you, how they have offended you, how they have hurt you. And this isn't about diminishing or dismissing that legitimate grievance that you may have against them. I'm really just here to repeat what John and what Jesus have told you, that you don't have permission to hate them. More than that, here is a command that you must love them. So if you know that there is nothing good in your heart towards that person, whether or not that's total apathy or a glowing rage or anything in between, you need to put that before God and you need to do some work on it. It may take time. There may be a process of, of forgiveness and a process of reconciliation that you need to work through. But it starts with your willingness to let go of that hatred, to let go of that bitterness and to put that at the feet of Jesus. As a wise person once said, you don't need to like everyone in your church, but you do need to love them. That's going to look like wanting what is best for them, being willing to serve them, being willing to pray for them. I think that's a pretty good litmus test of where your heart is at towards that person. Are you willing to pray for them and to pray what is good for them? Will you take an interest in their lives? doesn't mean you have to like all the same things. You don't have to go on holidays together. But you do need to love them. Those who love their brothers and sisters, John says, they're living in the light. 
It's about expressing the very nature and the character of God. That's what living like Jesus did looks like. The final test that John gives us here is a test of truth. Genuine Christianity is also about truth. In this last section, he talks about those who had claimed to be believers, but for John, he says they're anything but. In fact, he calls them antichrists. Pick this up in verse 21 of chapter 2. He says, I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar? It is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. Now, I don't know what springs to mind when you hear the word Antichrist. It might be two words with a hyphen. I don't know. Maybe for you, it, it, it your mind goes to some Hollywood film you've seen or uh, maybe what you've heard from a sketchy preacher who only ever likes to talk about the end times. Most of the time, the figure of the Antichrist is presented to us as this uh, dark, shadowy figure who's uh, controlling the New World Order, maybe the head of the Illuminati. If you don't know what those words are, please don't Google them. Um, it's just, for John, though, none of that, that's all dramatic. For John, when he talks about the Antichrist, it's just his way of talking about people who deny that Jesus is the Christ. And it's not one figure, it's a, seemingly here a group of people. They seem to have been a part of the church at one point, uh, but they've now gone their own way and they seem to be trying to, to win others from the church, to, to take others with them. I think we could talk about lots of groups over the last 2,000 years that you could describe in the way that John does, that they're groups that have they've gone out from us. He says that in verse 19. They've gone out from us, but they don't really belong to us. Lots of these groups would claim to hold Jesus in high esteem, to believe in him, but they deny some fundamental truths about him. Um, I'd put groups like the Mormons or the Jehovah's Witnesses in that category. They deny the, the divinity of Jesus, for example. And these groups, I will... Say they believe the Bible, they'll study it. They'll say they believe in Jesus. But they deny some of the most basic and fundamental things that the Bible teaches us about who Jesus is. As John puts it, they deny that Jesus is the Christ. And so John wants us to be aware that these sorts of counterfeits are out there. People will peddle a, a different Jesus, a fake Jesus. And so we need to be wary and we need to hold on to the truth we've been given. See, for John, the truth about Jesus matters. And it should matter to us as well. John wants to assure us, though, that we can be confident of what we have. That what we've received from him, what we've heard, what we've come to trust in, it is the truth. I think that's part of the reason why at the very beginning of this letter he reminded us about who he was as an eyewitness to Jesus, that, that he himself had seen and heard and touched the life, the word. But it's not just John's testimony. John reminds us that the Spirit of God himself has confirmed this message for us. So in verse 20, he talks about 
this anointing that we have from the Holy One. Talks about it again later in the letter too. And that through that anointing, we know the truth. Just as Jesus promised us, he would send this spirit, the, the advocate, the helper, the one who would guide us into all truth. And so God's spirit confirms within us what we have heard, who Jesus is. Now, why does John say all of that? Well, I don't think he's just wanting to take a few cheap shots at his opponents. Ultimately, his purpose is to urge his readers, us, to hold fast to Jesus. Or as he puts it in verse 27, to remain in him. In fact, he says this a few times in this last section. I'm just going to go over it with us very quickly. This is how he finishes. He says, as for you, see that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you also will remain in the Son and the Father. And this is what he promised us, eternal life. I'm writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. As for you, the anointing you receive from him remains in you. And you do not need anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you all about things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, remain in him. And now, dear children, continue in him, so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. Here we see John revealing his purpose in writing. He's saying, I'm writing so that you won't be led astray by these counterfeit Jesus claims. He says he wants to warn us about those who are spreading misinformation about Jesus. And he reminds us that the truth that we have is worth holding on to. In fact, we must remain in him, continue in him. It's one of those sort of lovely conundrums in the language we use of the Christian experience that we can only make progress in the Christian life if we stay right where we started. The call to continue in Jesus is the call to remain in Jesus. And we can do it. We can do it because God has given us everything that we need. We have the truth. We've been anointed by the Spirit of God. We have the Word. We even have each other. We remain in him by walking as Jesus did. As people who trust in God, who obey God, who love him and love others. So that when he returns, we can be those who are confident and unashamed before him at his coming. That's what John wants for us, that we be people who are confident, confident and unashamed when the time comes for Jesus to return and for us to all stand before him. That's not a day we need to fear. We don't need to be people racked with self-doubt and self-loathing because Jesus has secured that future for us. He's brought us to know him, given us everything we need to remain in him. And so can I urge you, as John does here, to live as Jesus did and to remain in him. We're going to pray. And Joe's going to lead us in that.